Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. We're going to jump straight in because we're going to cover, we're going into John 6. If you haven't been with us in a while, we're walking through uh, the Gospel of John, and we're calling it uh, Jesus, as told by the disciple who knew his love. And we'll get into it later in John, later in John, where this interaction, and it's actually a picture here of the Last Supper, where uh, John, who's, who's writing this, he describes himself as the one who Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so there was this unique relationship of John and Jesus where John really understood something that maybe the others didn't at this time, and that was Jesus' great love for him. And you see, Paul says in, the, in, the, in his letters that the whole point of this Christian life is for us to get to know his love for us. And many of us probably cut our teeth in Christianity on thinking that the point of Christianity is uh, a behavior improvement plan, a sin management plan. And, you know, unfortunately, that's, or fortunately, that's not what Christianity is. It is not a behavior improvement plan. It is a journey of getting to know his great, the depths of his love for us. And that has implications. That changes how we think. It changes what we feel. And so, therefore, behaviors are changed, but that's the byproduct of resting in his love for us. And so we've We've walked through chapter 1 through 5. Derek did an awesome job last week, I thought, of wrapping up chapter 5. If you weren't here, I encourage you to check it on the podcast. But we've seen this theme develop of Jesus using physical things, things of this world, whether it be water, whether it be uh, the temple, whether it be, you know, uh, all these other things, and transitioning the conversation to spiritual things. We've seen this trend develop. He talks about childbirth with Nicodemus. He talks about all sorts of physical things that you can taste, touch, feel, and experience in this world. But he's transitioning, saying all these things exist to reveal to us a spiritual reality, a spiritual world. And we're going to see that very plainly again today in John chapter 6, the first half of John 6. Before we get into it, um, who would be brave enough to kind of give us a synopsis, a sentence or two. I mean, you don't need to take, you know, uh, a whole, you know, uh, paper. But um, what is the point of the central theme of Jesus feeding the 5,000? What is that all about? As we recall the feeding of the 5,000 from our time in Sunday school and from reading the scriptures ourselves, hearing messages, I'm sure, before today about it. What's the central theme, idea, about Jesus feeding 5,000 people? To what? Ideas, thoughts? He had compassion on them. Compassion on them, absolutely. God is our provider. God is our provider, absolutely, absolutely. What else? I've heard things like to show that he is the creator of all, because, you know, he took... It's loaves and created all this extra loaves, right? And fish. Other things like that. What about Jesus walking on water? What's the central theme, the purpose, the point of Jesus walking on water? Faith, Faith, relying on him. All right. Yeah. I mean, no doubt. Jesus glorified. Jesus glorified. You got to be something in order to walk on water. (laughs) That's for sure, right? Uh, we're going to see, it's going to say that the disciples were terrified. It's like, yeah, understatement of the century. <laughs> like, there's a man walking on water here. Uh, the central idea, concept. 
What if I were to tell you, and we'll see it, so you don't have to trust me, you don't have to take my word for it, that the scripture actually says that Jesus walked on water to his disciples because they didn't understand what the feeding of the 5,000 was all about. What? The feeding of the 5,000 was misunderstood by the disciples, and so Jesus does this thing of walking on water. And so what's unfortunate for us is we kind of have these silos of Bible stories, right? The silo of the feeding of the 5,000, and here's kind of the central takeaway. And then over here we have the silo, idea, concept, story of Jesus walking on water. But what we'll see today is actually the walking on water cannot be understood apart from the feeding of 5,000. And the feeding of 5,000 is better understood in light of the what? Walking on water. So what I'm going to do really quickly is we're just going to read the 25 verses that we're going to take a look at today. Just read them from top to bottom to get an idea, a context. And then we're going to go back through and talk about it briefly. All right. After these things, Jesus went away. These things being chapter 5, what we talked about the last couple of weeks. Went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, as it's called. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. People who were sick were being well, so they're following the guy. Makes sense to me. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting his eyes, seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we going to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying, Jesus was saying, to test Philip, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. I've got to be careful. I'm not commenting right now. Uh, I'm just reading. Sorry. Uh, Verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. Not sufficient. I should have put that in red too. Not sufficient. For everyone, in order for everyone to receive even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a small lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these amongst so many people? What a great question to ask Jesus. Jesus said, Have the the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number of about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, having given thanks. He, Jesus, distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of, of the fish, as much as they wanted. Sorry, as much as they wanted. Verse 12. When they were filled... He said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley, five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw this sign, which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus perceiving, knowing their thoughts, that they were intending to come to him and take him by force to be their king, knowing that he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, so that's usually where people stop the feeding of 5,000. We're not. Verse 16, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, he started across the sea of Galilee to Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them presumably, regularly, by boat, is what he would normally do. Verse 18, the sea began to be stirred up because of the strong wind that was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. And they were frightened. Again, understatement. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So, we're going to walk through this a little bit slower, not too slow, but to see what is going on here. In order, as I said in the opening prayer this morning, this really is impressed upon my, my mind this week, 
you know, we hear all the time, at least I hear it all the time, you know, preach the word, preach the word, preach the word. And it's like, what does that even mean? What does it mean to preach the word? I mean, Paul writes that to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season to preach the word. Well, what does it mean to preach the word? Well, John chapter one says that in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we talked about how Jesus is the innermost, the word logos literally means the innermost, deepest thoughts of someone. So Jesus is the manifestation of the innermost, deepest thoughts of God the Father. That's who Jesus is. And he is full of grace and reality, truth. And so the innermost, deepest thoughts of God is personified in this person named Jesus, and he's walking amongst us. And so in order to preach the word, we're preaching Jesus. We're telling you that this, that when we look through this, we're not going to look through it from a perspective of, of uh, you know, let's find the morals to sort of live by, the, 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 the ideas to sort of, you know, uh, mold our life around. That's, that's not necessarily a bad thing to do, but that's not what we're going to do if we're going to preach the word. We're going to preach Jesus. What is this? Revealing about Jesus and about what he came to do. Not so much about you and me, but about him. So let's walk through these a little bit slower. I have a couple of comments and we'll tie it up at the end. So after these things, after chapter 5, after he uh, was down in Jerusalem, he had the interaction with the, the, the Jews about you know him being greater than Moses and about Moses was accusing them. Uh, if they believed Moses, they would believe him. After these things, he went away back up to Galilee, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, this place called Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because he saw the signs which he was performing. I mean, he had just healed this guy who had been 38 years trying to get well uh, in the uh, House of Mercy, the Pool of Bethesda, or whatever it's called, the House of Mercy. He was trying to get healed for 38 years, and, and Jesus heals him. And it's not just this one thing. I mean, back in chapter, what was it, four, he heals somebody, um, as well up in Galilee, but it's not just those two. This idea of those who were sick, it's multiple, multiple people who are being sick. In a second, we're going to see the word Passover used. And so this is a whole probably year or so that's passed since chapter four, uh, chapter five. So a lot has happened that John doesn't record. In fact, at the end of John, he says, if we wrote down everything, there would be enough books in the world to write down everything that Jesus had done. And so a lot has happened. A lot of people being sick, uh, who are sick have been healed through these signs of, of, of miracles. And so this large crowd is following him. And I don't blame him. I mean, this dude is raising up people who've been sick. Lepers are clean. Back restored to their family. I think that would be reason enough to follow after him. And so Jesus goes up on the mountain and he sits there with his disciples. Verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. They take a quick time out and talk about Passover. I know most of us probably understand the concept, but the children of Israel were in slavery in the children of Israel were in slavery in Egypt for hundreds and hundreds of years. Eventually, God brought Moses, if you not familiar, you know, you read the first part of Exodus. If you don't like reading, you know, watch the Charleston Heston, you know, film. But the, the, uh, the God brought Moses in and eventually the children of Israel were led free from slavery in Egypt. And that event the, that ultimately led to their freedom was called Passover, where Moses was commanded to take a, a lamb, kill it, and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of all the Israelites. And when God came through Israel, Egypt and he saw that blood had already been shed, sacrifice blood, uh, had already been paid, payment had already been paid, he passed over those homes. But if there was not blood on the doors, then the firstborn of the house died. That was the final plague of all the plagues in Egypt. And so the children of Israel the next day are freed by Pharaoh and they leave. And so there's this great feast, the celebration called Passover. Because the, the death angel of God passed over these houses. That's what's called Passover. And so this is, he calls it the feast of Israel. Now there's at least four feasts of Israel, but 
John is emphasizing, like, this is the feast, the most important feast. And at the beginning of the book of John, he quotes John the Baptist saying that this Jesus, he is the what of God? The Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And so every year at Passover, they would have this great celebration of what God did in the past to come out of Egypt. They would sacrifice their lambs. They would have, you know, uh, this entire uh, feast and celebration of what God did. And they still do. The, the Jew, those who are still practicing Jews still have this feast. And it's around the time of Easter. Well, it is another year, maybe two years, two more Passovers from now when Jesus himself hangs on the cross as the Passover lamb for the sin of the whole world. And because all of our sin was placed into him and he died for us, we who receive his quote-unquote blood, the wrath of God now passes over us who believe. So all that was a shadow of what would come and be fulfilled in Christ. And so the timing is they're celebrating the passing over of God's wrath for their forefathers because of this blood of this animal that was shed for them. And so this is important for us to see the timing. The whole nation of Israel is celebrating the wrath of God passing over them because of an animal that was sacrificed on their behalf hundreds of years before. The feast of the Jews. So Jesus is not going to let this pass over. He's not going to let this pass over. He's not going to let this, this opportunity to pass by him to teach about himself and what he had come to do. So, therefore, therefore what? Well, when you come to the a therefore in Scripture, you've got to figure out what it's therefore. Therefore, because of it being this Passover time, because of them celebrating, their minds are already thinking about the grace of God, the mercy of God passing over them back in Egypt. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes, And seeing this crowd that was coming to him, he says to Philip, Hey, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that all these may eat? Now, the whole chapter of 6 is about bread. The question comes into us. We've got to wrap our minds around that Jesus isn't just talking about barley and wheat and whatever else is used to make bread. Water? I don't know. I just buy it at the store. He's not just talking about grains that have been processed into bread. He's talking about something bigger. But if we miss that, then we we miss the whole chapter. In fact, he gets into it next week at the end of the chapter. We're going to cover that next week in an argument because Jesus is comparing himself to the manna that came out of heaven. How dare he? And so this whole thing is about bread. So he opens it up. Therefore, because this Passover thing was coming, people are already thinking this, remembering the mercy of God, the grace of God. He starts a conversation about bread. Where can we buy enough bread so that these may eat? Philip wisely, oh, well, sorry, verse 6. He was saying this to test Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. I I, I think this is a very important verse because there's a lot of times God asks questions in the Bible. He asks Adam, Adam. Where are you? Well, some would take that and say, well, God must not have known. No, I think verse 6 is pretty applicable universally. He knows, but he asks questions throughout the scripture, not for his own gaining of understanding, but for people to be thinking. He tests Philip in this. Verse 7, Philip answered him. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to even receive a little. Now, what's a denarii? A denarii was attached to the value of someone's labor for the day. So the value of a denarii could change, you know, from economy to economy, you know, from year to year. But the essence is that a denarii was attached to the labor that someone performs for a day, a day's worth of labor. And I'm emphasizing the word labor because he emphasizes, he uses this word, uh, where is it, denarii, which is attached to labor. You can't understand the, the coin, the denarii, without understanding the concept of labor. 
It was attached to the, the, so like you have the gold standard. We used to have the gold standard, right, in America. Well, the standard here was the labor standard, if you will. And so the denarii was attached to the labor of someone for a day, a day's worth of labor. And he said 200 days worth of labor is what he's saying. The money earned from 200 days worth of labor is not enough to buy bread for everybody to even have a little. It's not sufficient. It's not going to go far enough. 200 Denarii, 200 days worth of labor. Well, if you work five days a week, you take off, you know, the, the weekends, you know, at least in the Jewish culture, at least Saturday for Sabbath. But if you take off the weekends, you know, you're down to 260 or some, some odd days. You have a couple of vacation days, a couple of sick days. You know, it's basically, in general, it's a year's worth of wage. He's saying an entire year's worth of wage. We all are in the process, if you haven't finished already, of doing your taxes. And so you've got your adjusted gross income, your gross income, you're figuring that stuff out. Your entire year's worth of wage, Philip is saying, is not enough to feed bread for even everybody to have a little bit. But here's what I want us to see. It's specific. It's unique that he picks this idea of denarii, which is attached to what? I keep saying it because it's important. Wage, uh, labor. Labor. Philip's immediate concept is there isn't enough labor working in a year in order to feed everybody to even have a little bit. And so all the labor for a whole year wouldn't even give them a little bit. Let's keep going. But let's don't let's let's keep this mind, this idea of labor working as hard as we can for a whole year wouldn't even feed them. Verse 8. Well, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, uh, said to him, Jesus, here is a lad who has five barley loaves and two fish. And Andrew says, but what is that? What is that? What are these for so many people? Now, who is this boy? We don't know anything about this boy except we know he has some food, but there's one other thing that we know about this boy that I want us to see because we'll come back to it at the end. He is somebody's what? Son. He is somebody's son. He's a lad. He's a, little, he's a boy. Somebody's son has bread. It's not enough. Andrew is like, what is this among so many? And, and what are all these people doing without any food? Right? I mean, this one boy is the only one who has any food. But he's somebody's son who has some bread. We'll come back to that. So let's get this picture. Andrew, uh, Philip, Andrew, they're like 200 days worth of working isn't enough. So some might say, think, well, we, ne- we better get to working. We need to be- get to working harder because if 200 de- de- denarii isn't enough, then we, maybe 300 will do it, maybe 400. Let's work two years in order to feed everybody. That's just impractical. How are you going to feed? Everybody's going to be dead in two, four years if you do that. And so here's what Jesus does. Remember, he already knew what he was going to do. Passover is there. He's ready. He has come to teach people about him. So here's what Jesus does. So cool. He says, have the people what? Sit down. Now, wait a second, Jesus. You, did you just hear me? This is Philip. Did you just hear me? Uh, is this mic on, Jesus? I just said 200 days of working isn't even enough. And you want us to sit down? We've got to get some work to do. We, we've got to get to work to get this food. And Jesus, you're saying sit down? That's not, that's not work. In fact, in the Greek, this word sit down, it literally has the idea of recline. It's not just sit down in some sort of like stiff chair, you know, like that Victorian sort of chair in like your grandma's sitting room. Your grandma has a sitting room maybe. It's not that. It's recline. Have them take a load off. Have them rest. And so his prescription, his instruction to the people wasn't to, well, somebody needs to start, you know, mowing some grass here to get some money in. His, his prescription was take a load off, sit down, rest. Now, there was much grass, could have mowed it, in the place. So the men sat down in number 
about 5,000. Now, it doesn't say this, but we can imagine that these people following Jesus were not just male. They were probably male and female. So do some math real quick. If, and, and, and this isn't you know, absolute, but if every one of these 5,000 men had a wife, what number are we at? I mean, I can do that one. 10,000, you know, if, right? If you count the women, and the reason they didn't count men and women, or women and children is because in that culture, they didn't count women and children for much of anything, even census and, and different things. They didn't count. Uh, the, 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 the Romans did, but the Jews, they didn't, they didn't matter to them. And so that's why we have only the count of the men. But let's just say they all had a wife, 10,000. Let's say they all had 2.5 kids. They didn't bring their white picket fence with them, but, but they have 2.5 kids. So we're looking at you know, maybe 22,500 people, if we can assume, we can think, imagine. Like, that's a lot of people. No wonder it would take 200 days worth of labor in order for everybody to not even have a little. This is a massive amount of people. I don't think we should just limit it to the 5,000 that's listed because that's the number of of men. So the men numbered 5,000. So all the work, all the labor for nearly a whole year could not give everyone even a little and so what does Jesus do before he gives them? We already read it. He gives them plenty. He has them recline. He has them rest. He has them sit down. He has them stop working. Wow. So we just read it. We know what happens. Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Now, other gospels do say that the disciples helped distribute. But here in John, it says that he distributed to those who were seated. Now, the logistical mind in me is like trying to think like, okay, how is that possible, right? But let's just go with it. He, even if he uses the disciples, who is it that is giving it to the disciples to hand out? It's he, it's Jesus is distributing this food. He's taking the five loaves and and the fish, the two fish, and in a miraculous event, he is multiplying it before their very eyes. And also the fish were multiplied as much as they wanted. So there's a unique uh, contrast here. Philip over here, he's saying 200 days worth of work and labor and effort isn't even going to be enough for everyone to have a little. Jesus over here is sit down, rest, stop working, and they had more than they could handle. It's different. That's weird. That's odd. That's not of this world. I think of, uh, is it Isaiah, where God said to Isaiah, he said, behold, the days are coming when I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do something new, not like before. This is something weird and wild. So they were filled. And he said to his disciples, gather up, turn my page, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost so Jesus filled them, and there was so much more that they could, they were all satisfied, and there was even extra. Now, I pondered on this statement all week long, because I didn't really know, and I'm not suggesting I do know what it is, I'm open to your thoughts on this, but why does Jesus, of all the things that he could say here, he makes a point to say, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. Um, and I thought on that all week, and I asked the Lord, like, you know, any you know, help here? Because I really didn't see much that other people were saying about this. And I think that this speaks of Jesus and how much he valued his work that he was doing right there. He valued the work that he was doing with, these, with this bread and this fish so much so in a precious sort of way that he said, let's, let's don't lose any of this. It's valuable. His work right here is valuable. We'll come back to that. So, verse 15, they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves, which were left over by those who were eaten. So, 12 baskets. We don't know how big these baskets are, but if you were a Jew, if you are a Jew, if you were a Jew in that day, and you read the phrase, the, 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 the words, 12 baskets, what would be the first thing that comes to your mind? What? 
The, well, the disciples, perhaps, but the 12 tribes, definitely. See, the number 12, that's the number of, of, of power and of authority and of, 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 uh, of, of uh, uh, future. Because if you weren't a part of the tribes, one of the tribes, you didn't have a future in, uh, in, in the nation of Israel. And so the idea when you would hear, if you're a Jew, hear the, the phrase 12 anything, you're automatically going back to the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel. And so 12 baskets are picked up from the five barley loaves. Now, what happened to the fish? Was there not any fish left over? I don't know. I don't have a word from the Lord about the fish. But my only thought is this chapter isn't about the fish. And we'll get into it more in depth next week when Jesus doesn't say, I am the fish from heaven. So if the fish are cool, but the fish is like an add-on, I think. And we might talk next week. I don't have time this week to talk about about the fish and the name, the Greek name for fish, which is ichthus, which is actually an acronym, acrostic acronym, whatever it is. The first letter spells out something for each. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior in the Greek. So maybe that's why he talked about the fish. Like, hey, I'm Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Anyways, I don't know about the fish, but he's only referring to the bread from here Fourth to the end of the chapter, it's all about bread. So he has these 12 baskets left over. Now, verse 14, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This truly is the prophet who has come into the world. See, the Jews were convinced that there was, in the Old Testament prophets, they prophesied about a prophet, a nameless prophet who would come. And they were convinced that this nameless prophet who would come would come and redeem them not from the power of sin that was that was unheard of that that didn't they didn't think about that they had the law to rescue them they thought from the power of sin they thought that this prophet to come would be the one that sets them free from the oppression from the romans and so whether they equated him to the messiah or not i don't know i'm not an expert in in, in, in those things, but what I do know is that they were wanting to set him up, set Jesus up as an earthly king because they had given, because he had given them earthly bread. So get this idea. Eating earthly bread to them, the next logical step was you were going to set you up as an earthly king. But Jesus had no desire to just simply give earthly bread because every single one of these people the next day were what? They were hungry again. So the earthly kingdom is of no interest, no value to Jesus, which is why it says in the next verse, so Jesus knowing, perceiving that they were intending to make him, take him by force. I don't know how you can by force become someone's king, um, but that he knew that they were, had not the same intentions he had. He withdrew again to the mountain to be alone by himself because they had taken earthly bread and satisfied them. They wanted an earthly kingdom and what I'm submitting to you is that all this stuff about this bread being multiplied and making people who are hungry full, I think it's all a shadow, a picture of the spirit, the spiritual world, where Jesus, as he declares himself later in the chapter, being the bread from heaven, a spiritual food, a spiritual bread. And when we see him as that, then we are ready to embrace him as our spiritual king. But physical bread, physical king, spiritual bread, spiritual king. And he was not, he didn't have any, he had no desire to be their physical king. So this is where the story ends. And we go into this walking on water. But I want us to make sure we're on the same page here that this thing about bread, this thing about multiplying it, yeah, sure, it shows us his ability to create out of nothing as the creative power of God. What were some of the other things that we said earlier? Um, it was to show, what did you guys say? Compassion. Compassion, absolutely. I mean, it definitely shows those things. But I'm saying it's way bigger than that. It's way deeper than that. That Jesus is actually showing himself, this is a shadow of himself being what can satisfy the deepest, most longing recesses of one's soul. Not a stomach, but a soul. And Andrew's question, what was it? What is this little bit for so what? So many. What is one man's sacrifice? 
What is one human being sacrifice on a cross for what? So many. What is this one body in his work, his sacrifice, his death on the cross for the sins of the world? And I think he takes time. What was the feast that they were about to enter into? Passover. He takes the time in Passover to give them a glimpse at what he had come to do. And his sacrifice not only was enough to give them a what? A little. But his sacrifice was to fill them up, enough to fill them up and have leftovers, more than enough to satisfy. And what I'm seeing and saying and suggesting is that we have to see this in the realm of the spirit that Jesus Christ himself and his work and his sacrifice on the cross and the subsequent resurrection is more than enough to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart, which the deepest longings of our dead heart before we're in Christ, the deepest longing is life. And so we can search for it in so many thousands of different places and directions. But if we don't look to him to satisfy, to give life, we will never be satiated. And he, Andrew, Philip was suggesting that work was the way to satisfy. But he said, but even work won't satisfy. And so Jesus tells them to sit down. He will satisfy. And what I'm suggesting to you, again, all this is shadows and pictures of what Jesus came to do. That we naturally are bent towards the thinking that our religious mindset is, is, is bent towards this idea of I must prove, I must labor, I must demonstrate, I must show, I must sacrifice. We're right now in the season of, of Lent. It's a thing. I never really got into it, never really understood it. It wasn't a part of a group that ever did it. But it's, my understanding is this idea of taking 40 days before Passover before Easter, to, to rededicate and refocus, you know, get serious, get re, re, uh, new your passion for serving the Lord, for doing good things, etc. And I, I hear Jesus basically teaching us in this through Philip that look, 200 days of religious zealous effort isn't going to be enough to actually satisfy. Do you see that? 40 days of Lent, that's child's play. 200 days of zealous dedication isn't even going to be enough. And so what should our response be? Our response should be like Andrew's. What is this effort of working to get cleaner, working to get closer? What is this effort amongst this great desperate uh, 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 chasm between a holy and righteous and pure God and sinful, wicked sin in our flesh. What is, what is doing 200 days of spiritual, ritualistic, great, memorize the whole scripture if you want. But what is that in effort of trying to get to where he is? It's, it's nothing. Of course, Andrew is just talking about bread and people, but there's something deeper going on. Let's preach the word. Let's not just preach words on a page. Let's preach Jesus. And so Jesus' command, remember, was sit down, take a load off. Literally, the Greek, recline. Get this mindset of trying to work your way into satisfaction and work your way into cleanness with God. Get it out of your mind. Because behold, I'm doing a new thing where you sit and receive by faith. I'm suggesting the disciples didn't quite catch that. They didn't quite understand that. They didn't put the twos and twos together. And I don't blame them because so many of us today in 2019 don't put the twos and twos together about what the feeding of the 5,000 is all about. So Jesus does something next. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. So the Sea of Galilee is this large body of water where the whole industry of Galilee centers around fishing, namely. And most all, not all, but most all of Jesus' disciples, their previous life before following Jesus around for three and a half years was what? They were all what? Most of them, not all, fishermen, right. I mean, he calls Andrew, Peter, James, John from this, the, the, this very shore of this very sea. He says, hey, I'll make you fishers of men. So they're fishermen. In other words, 
How experienced or how familiar do you think that these 12 men, and I know some of them were tax collectors and different things, but, but the majority, how, how familiar do you think they were with this body of water? It's, it's, yeah, it's home. It's where they, since they were kids with their dad, they knew this place. And so their, their goal was to get to the other side of the sea. And it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Jesus is up on the mountain. The, in Mark, it talks about how he was spending time praying. The disciples go down to cross to get to the other side. Now look at this. In John, it says, The sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind that was blowing. In the Gospel of Mark, it gives a greater detail of just how violent this wind was that came against the disciples. All they wanted to do was to do what they had done a million times before and just row across to the other side. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that this wind was so violent that they started at a certain time, I forget exactly, uh, but it was right, right at, as, uh, as it was, uh, the, the, the sun was going down. Is that called dusk or dawn? Dusk, yeah. And, and, uh, and they were rowing, and it was past midnight when Jesus sees them, and he sees them still not far from shore. The wind was that bad. So they're rowing literally for hours, not getting anywhere because of how violent this wind was. John doesn't describe it that violently, but Mark does when he describes the same event in his gospel. So it just sounds like a wind was blowing. But apparently it was so forceful that these men who had done this very task thousands of times, I submit, were not able to even get far from the shore, even rowing for hours upon hours. And so... uh, The scripture says, verse 19, when they had rowed by this time three or four miles out, again, they've been rowing for hours upon hours, and they should have already been there and back 17 times, I'm saying, like not literally, I'm just exaggerating, but this is something that they had done a thousand times. They can't get out of shore. They finally get just a few miles out, and they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened the gospel of Mark again gives a little bit more detail talking about how tired the men were how anxious they were how fearful they were about drowning they never faced it seems like something so hard to do. But he said to them, verse 20, it is I. Do not be afraid. Literally, stop being so worried. Verse 21, so they were willing to receive him into the boat. Now look at this next statement. And I put it in red because it's huge. Immediately, they were at the land to which they were going. Now, is that a typo? Is that an exaggeration, Holy Spirit? Immediately, when Jesus entered into their boat, they were at the land, at the shore in Capernaum, where they were trying to get to. That's the end of the walking on water in John. That's the end of the walking on water in Mark. Somebody ask a question. What about who? Peter. What what happened to Peter? Well, the walking on water is in only three of the four Gospels. And it's only in the Gospel of Matthew that Peter is even mentioned. Do you find that surprising? I do. So we asked, what's the point of the walking on water? We heard faith. We heard dependence upon God. And I'm all for those things, right? But so many of us, myself especially, have concluded that the walking on water is get out your boat and do big things for God. Walk on water. Keep your eyes on Jesus and do big things for him. Get out your boat. If that's the point or something like that, then anybody who reads the Gospel of Mark and anybody who reads the Gospel of John misses the point because Peter isn't mentioned. Do you find that odd? I do. Personally, so here's what I'm going to suggest to us. Not absolutely, but I'm going to suggest suggest to us that maybe the point of Jesus walking on the water wasn't to teach us to get out of the boat. 
Maybe. Because, again, in only one-third of the accounts do we even read about Peter getting out of the boat. Two-thirds, there is no account of that. But in all three accounts, there is description of Jesus getting what? Into their boat. Big difference. What about Peter? Luke doesn't even uh, Luke doesn't record this event at all. Perhaps the point isn't so much about you getting out of your boat and walking to him. After all, how successful was Peter at that? He did take a few steps, but he failed at trying to walk to Jesus. But perhaps the point is about you being willing to receive Jesus into your boat. You see, to me, the Old Testament concept, the summary of the Old Testament, the law is you get out, you work, you try, you strive to get your way towards God. But the New Testament, I think the central theme idea is Jesus here walking on water in order to get into your boat. Remember, how long had these guys tried to do something that they could have done in their sleep? Hours. They are laboring. I'm using that word again. They're laboring to cross the water. And there's a power against them called wind in this. But they're laboring to do something that's so simple. But they can't do it. Your boat spent hours all night long on the sea as you're laboring to get to where you're trying to go. So what am I saying? Here's what I'm trying to say. Religion is all about you trying to work your way towards God. You working your way to get closer to him, to get cleaner before him, etc., etc. And these disciples, they were working as hard as they absolutely could to get to the other side where they wanted to go. The wind was against them and they just simply couldn't overcome it, no matter the skill or the effort. And there's 12 of them. I assume they all had oars. I don't know. But this is like you and me trying by our own energies, our own skills, our own passions, desires, whatever. No matter how hard we try, there is a wind against us called the power of sin. And before we are born again, the power of sin has enslaved us to itself. And I'm suggesting that a whole new way has come with Jesus. And he's showing us this in John chapter 6. A whole new way, a whole new thinking, a whole new economy has come in this new covenant. A whole new day has dawned, and Jesus is the one who does the work for us. And we just simply receive him into our boats, if you will, into our lives. And he takes us to where we deeply want to go. And where is it that we deeply want? What is it? I said it earlier. What is it we deeply want if we are dead in our sins? What do those who are dead in their sins desperately want, whether they realize it or not? Life. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do, to restore life to the dead, spiritually dead. And how quickly does he take us there? Immediately. I mean, this is no... Exaggerate, I don't think, exaggeration from John, from the Holy Spirit. He takes us there immediately. And I, I'm going to refer back to Mark's gospel again. And, and in Mark's gospel, not so much here in John's, but in Mark's gospel, it specifically states that Jesus did this walking on water thing because they didn't understand about the feeding of the 5,000. They didn't understand what it was all about. So these two events, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, they are inseparable. One was done to help the disciples understand the other. And we should be careful to not, like I said at the beginning, put these in two separate silos where we try to get a, a, a moral lesson out of this one and a separate moral lesson out of this one. But the walking on water was to help the disciples understand the big picture about Jesus being the bread of life for the world. Jesus is the bread that is more than able to satisfy the masses. He is the bread that is able to feed, truly feed the starving soul. He is the bread that gives life to the dead. More than enough life 
They were full and there was leftovers and laboring for even a whole year in religious activities won't even begin to satisfy. But Jesus himself and his work is more than enough to satisfy. And the disciples didn't get it. And so Jesus helps them by walking on water. He helps them understand it by walking on water. They had labored for hours and hours. They were denarying, if, if, you, if you will. They were trying their best to earn their way across the sea by labor, and they barely got anywhere. And so Jesus strolls effortlessly, like, just like with the breaking of the bread. Do you think he was grunting and straining at breaking this bread? No. And then in the same effortless stroll, Jesus is walking across the water, and he enters into their existence, into their boat, and immediately they get to where they want to be. Our journey marker, I have some more closing thoughts, but our journey marker this morning is very simple. Jesus is more than enough. Think of the bread. There was 12 baskets left over. He's more than enough to take you where you need to go. And where does the dead need to go? We need to go to life. If you're on this side of, of the uh, uh, sea, the, the lake, that's the word, lake, on the dead side, you, you want to get to the other side, the live side. And these disciples are trying their hardest to get over there. But as soon as Jesus gets in, they're there immediately. He doesn't say, okay, now here's how you do it. You try harder. You row harder. He doesn't teach them and coach them how to row better. He takes them there immediately, immediate life. And so Jesus is more than enough to take you where you truly need to go to the Father, to him. So here's the struggle. Our minds remain set on the need for labor, for effort, to impress God. We actually think, and I'm not going to have a show of hands because it'll be embarrassing, but we actually think there's a verse in the Bible that says, quote, God helps those who help themselves. We, we've heard that verse, right? Yeah, it's in third uh, uh, Hezekiah, right? Find it and read it for us all. It's not, it's, it's not, it's, we think it's a Bible verse. God helps those who help themselves. That's the most anti-gospel thinking ever. It's not in the Bible. There's not a third Hezekiah. Um, Adam one, yeah. But we have this, this, this natural mindset that it's our effort, it's our zeal, it's our Sunday morning attendance, it's our reading of the Bible, it's our things we do that really are going to show God how much we value him and how impressed he is going to be with us. The struggle is that the default thinking of these unredeemed minds is, is that we see the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God and we see the sin in the flesh that we struggle in all the time and we think the conclusion is we've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of things to overcome to get to where he is. Tell me I'm lying. I mean, that's the default thinking in our unredeemed minds. But here's what we need to do. We need to look like, uh, like uh, Philip, who Philip says, even a year's worth, and I'm interpreting here, even a year's worth of religious, zealous effort of cleansing ourselves, memorizing scripture, keeping all the laws, doing all the commands, working out of a dedication and a zeal to get closer and cleaner, a whole year's worth of this won't even begin to truly change our dead hearts. It won't begin to even satisfy and that's where we need to get to. That's where humanity needs to get to. A realization that all the effort in the world isn't going to change anything. We need to see the grandeur of God and the wickedness and sinfulness of sin in the flesh. And we need to come to terms that we can't do it. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many years we try, whether it's 40 days of Lent or 200 days of denarii labor earning, we cannot do it. And just as Andrew revealed someone's son. He, he manifested somebody's son to Jesus in that same exact way God the Father himself manifests his own son to us. The son that Andrew revealed had some bread, a couple loaves. 
But God's son is the one, the one revealed is the one who is the bread. And unlike Andrew who said, what is this bread in the face of so many who are hungry? God says, my son is more than enough. Oh yeah, how much more than enough? Twelve baskets more than enough. God call, God's call for us is not for us to work our way closer and cleaner to him through religious and zealous dedication. God's call for us is honestly, it's the same exact call he had for them. And what was that? It was in red. Sit down. Recline. Rest. I'll take it from here. I will do what you cannot do. Rest and eat of me, he says. Receive my son's work, his forgiveness, his love. Receive his life. That's the only way. And they collected the extras. I love how it said, so that none of it is lost. And I just think that reveals to us how precious to the Father the work of his son Jesus truly is. The Father doesn't take the sacrifice of his son lightly, just as they didn't take lightly the leftovers. They gathered them all up because they were precious. The father, the same way, doesn't take lightly the sacrifice of his son. His son was broken and spilled out for the sins of the world, which is more than enough to take us where we want to go. And for those who receive him, for those who believe him, God gives us the rights to become sons of his. And if sons, then we are also heirs and co-heirs with Christ. According to Mark, the disciples didn't see Uh, The disciples didn't see what the feeding of the 5,000 was all about. They didn't get it. And so when they couldn't get across the sea because of the wind, a picture of man trying his hardest to get where man wants to go from death to life, trying their hardest, Jesus enters into their boat and they get there immediately. Friends, I just, I think that's the gospel. The goodness of God who has by his love and mercy and grace towards us, he takes us by his work. He takes us to where we really want to go from death to life. And it's not based a single bit upon what we could bring to the table. 200 days worth of working, striving all night to get across the sea. It's not going to get us there. But when Jesus enters the scene, he takes us there immediately. With that being said, I wonder if there's, there's, this isn't the end of the chapter. We got to pick back up there next week. It gets confrontive between Jesus and these, these people he just fed. They get mad at him. So weird people. But before we break off and start tearing down, any questions or thoughts or ideas or, but what abouts that you may have, uh, picked up on as we were walking through these two seemingly disconnected events, feeding 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, but in reality are much more connected than we ever thought. Well, I've, for a while now, I've been just really interested in like the names of things and what they mean. And so it said this was all happening at the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias, and Tiberias meant good vision or the navel. And so when I think of like the what the navel like navel the okay and so you think about your navel is when you're completely 100 percent dependent mm. at your lifeline you do nothing but receive mm. through that wow and so then at the side of the Sea of Galilee Jesus feeds these people as much as they wanted with leftovers when they just sat down but then also on the Sea of Galilee they were rowing to Capernaum which means Nahum's village and Nahum meant comforter. And so it's when they finally, on the Sea of Galilee, received Jesus, they were immediately in the Comforter's Village, wow. where they were trying to head on their own. I was like, yeah. that's crazy. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I didn't pick up on that. Very cool. Immediately. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Other thoughts? Yeah, Jess? About the, it was kind of irresponsible for that many people to come together and follow Jesus and 
Right. And uh, I mean, I would imagine that it was kind of unusual for that to happen. Um, somebody, a band playing or something in South Door, somebody bring some food. Right. Get a cooler. And I was also thinking about them starting out in the water and then facing into a storm. It may have been. I mean, I was just thinking about our efforts and the things mm -hmm. we do, how we misjudge or miscalculate. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Anything else? It's pretty cool, though, isn't it? I mean, the fact that, uh, I mean, he, he, it, it, we'll see it so clearly next week. I mean, he, he says, I am this bread. And, uh, and it doesn't fit to have this story about walking on water right in the middle of it. Like, what, what's the point of this? But when you see how the one explains the other, how the one helps the disciples understand, whoa, this isn't just about bread, like, you know, of, of feeding 5,000 people, but this is about something coming into us. Because Jesus is going to say next week, unless you eat my flesh, unless you take me into you, then you have no part. Oh, he got into the boat. That was a little bit further explanation. Now he's saying, get this bread into you. Well, he said, bread into you, me into the, uh, the, Jesus into the boat. And then he says very aggressively, unless you eat my flesh, unless I get in you, you have no part of me. So we must receive, sit down, recline, rest, stop trying and receive, which is so counterintuitive to the way our minds think. Yes, ma'am. You know, this is kind of, uh, maybe it's not about the bread or whatever, but I was wondering, why did John say that there was much grass? Yeah, I don't know. And immediately my thought went to the 23rd Psalm. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. he, he decides to go pasture, green right. pasture. Right, right. Which I think is Christ. Yeah, sure, yeah. And so I just thought. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I, 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 guys, I, th I thought about it too. I didn't know, so I didn't, you know. Say anything about it, but yeah, great, huh? Yeah, especially if it's a nice fescue turf, you know. <laughs> Take your feet, shoes off. Absolutely. I just feel he was trying to teach in the direction of faith too. Mm -hmm. Not just having faith in him, but allowing faith to come into them by believing. In him. Yeah, because that's a whole different. Yeah. Don't believe everything I do. Believe that you're capable of doing that too. If you wow. believe in me, it works. Yeah, now, that's a great point, Doug. That the whole concept of faith was very uh, foreign, you know, because uh, the law, Paul says, is not of faith. Not at all. And so the Jewish culture was not of faith. There was not a faith element involved, which is why. Jesus, we already saw it with the, the Samaritans. He, he's like, they didn't need a sign. They just believed. Well, they didn't have the yoke of the law as much as the Jews did. And so, uh, so that's a, that's a great point. It's not just only about faith in me, but it's just like faith, period. Like, do you even know what that looks like, tastes like, feels like? Because you've been so, you've been eating, going back to bread, eating. You've been eating this law-based system for so long. Like, you don't even know what faith, faith tastes like. It's a great point. Yeah. Anything else? Steve, do you have a hand? No? Okay. I didn't. There was a scratch. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, I, I look forward to uh, finishing this up uh, next week, hopefully, because there's a lot going on in the second part of, of the chapter. But um, read ahead if you want, um, because the, the guys 
they cross over, they find Jesus over there, and they're like, how did you get here? Like, and then he just starts explaining it all to them, and they start getting mad, and eventually, it was how many people? Men? And at the end of the chapter, it basically makes it sound like there are 12. Wow. Talk about a church growth program there, you know. <laughs> 5,000 men, maybe 22,500 to 12. And Peter, remember, he says, Jesus, are you guys going to desert me also? Are you going to leave also? And Peter says, where else can we go? For you have the words of life. Forget that. Life. That's what this is all about. The bread, it's about life in the physical. Eat to live. But Jesus is saying, man, this is bigger than that. It's a spirit you're going from this dead side of the sea to, to, to life, village of comfort, immediately. And, he, and Peter's picking up on it. Where else can we go to discover this life? So I uh, hope you come back. It's pretty awesome. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for just blowing our minds week in and week out from these same scriptures that we have been familiar with for all of our lives. Feeding of the 5,000 today. A couple weeks ago, the woman at the well. Before that, even Nicodemus. Before that, when Brandon spoke about the, uh, the wedding. I mean, these things are f- so familiar, but we have, myself at least, have just been blind to seeing Jesus in it all. Yes, he has compassion over the crowd, absolutely. But his compassion was by no stretch limited to the physical. He knew the season of Passover was coming. And so he took time to show, to reveal to even us today, thousands of years later, the true picture, the true work of Christ, that he is enough, more than enough, to take us where we truly need to go from death to life. Father, I pray that that truly seeks in, that it's not our religious zeal that takes us there. It is Jesus plus nothing. And so it's him we proclaim. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.